Uh, if you're following along in your outline, you'll see we have a definition of what a miracle is. It's an event, an event caused by the powerful and intentional action of God. And I'm going to rephrase it a little bit in the definition you have printed there. Uh, I like this, this concept, this picture of God shattering, shattering the laws of nature that he created. And he has the right to do that because he is God. And last week we talked about this tension that we sometimes experience in our faith. We ask for a miracle. We pray for a miracle, and then we have to wait. And we wait to see whether or not God will provide the miracle or whether he will perhaps do something different than what we asked him to do. And that can cause tension in our faith at times. This morning what I'd like to do is address another tension in our faith that we may experience when we ask for a miracle. It's this. Have you ever thought about the relationship between our faith and God's miracles? Have you ever thought about that? Does that ever create within your mind, within your heart, some tension? Maybe you've heard someone say, if you just have enough faith, then uh, you'll get your miracle. If you, you didn't, God didn't do what you asked. God didn't answer your prayer. Well, I guess you didn't have enough faith, or maybe you didn't pray the right way. And maybe these kinds of thoughts or these comments have created within you a tension in your faith. What is the relationship then between our faith and God's miracles? I want to talk about that this morning. You know, there, there are some miracles that we don't even ask for. Sometimes God just provides a miracle in our lives because he's kind, because he's gracious. We may call that a close call. Have you ever had one of these things in your life where if you would have been just one second earlier or one second later, you would have been the one in the car accident? If you uh, would have been one centimeter this way or this way, you would have been the one hit by this or that. Maybe you went to the doctor for something minor, I don't know what it would be. You had a bunion on your toe. I don't know. You went for something insignificant, and in the process of all of that, the doctor discovered something very serious that was going on in your body that you had no idea was happening, and you would not have known until perhaps it was too late. But because they caught it early, you experienced healing, right? We call those kinds of things close call. Perhaps it would be described as God's providence. Maybe you would describe it as a miracle. But there are things that God does in our lives sometimes that uh, we don't even know he's at work doing. And we didn't even ask. He's just kind and he's gracious. And he does those things. But what about the miracles we do ask for? What about the miracles that we do pray and beg Jesus for? What is the relationship between our faith and God's miracles? If you study the word faith, I did a, just a word study. You have these big, thick books, and you can look up any word that's in the Bible, and you can see where that particular word appears in every verse, right? Big, thick book. And it was interesting to see that the word faith, as it appears, in, especially in the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke, not so much John for some reason, but Matthew, Mark, and Luke. When you see that word faith, uh, I, don't know what, I didn't figure out the, the mathematical percentage, but it's a high percentage at the time. It is connected to a miracle. 
And that miracle story, uh, there is this correlation, there's a strong connection between the person's faith and the miracle. You see it repeated throughout the Gospels. When Jesus healed people from blindness, when he healed people from leprosy or paralysis, he repeated the same phrase over and over again. What did he say? Your what? Faith has healed you. Isn't that interesting? Wait a minute. Clearly, it is the divine miracle-working power of Jesus, of God, that has healed the person. And yet, Jesus continued to make this statement when he looks at a person after he's healed them and says, your faith has healed you. There's a connection between our faith and the miracles of God. On multiple occasions, we hear Jesus criticizing the lack of faith that he saw in his disciples. Do you remember the story of Jesus, his disciples? They were in a boat on the sea, and a storm came up, and they all panicked. We're going to talk about it more next week. We'll actually look at this story next week. But they all panicked, and they, they screamed out, we're all going to die, and Jesus doesn't care. He's over here sleeping. And what did Jesus say? He calms the storm, and he says, why do you lack faith? You guys have such little faith. We'll talk more about that one next week. It was interesting to read the story in Matthew chapter 13. It's also in Mark chapter 6. When Jesus went to his hometown to visit, and the people in his hometown basically reject him. He's not the Messiah. He's, not, he's just Jesus. He's the kid that grew up down the street. And they had that attitude towards him. And and uh, they, they rejected him. And it says both in, in Matthew's account and in Mark's account that Jesus did very few miracles in his own hometown. Not because he didn't care about these people. Not because he didn't love them. Not because he couldn't. But it says in both cases it's recorded because of, quote, their lack of faith. He didn't do very many miracles in his own hometown. There's these verses then connecting faith and miracles. Uh, I, I'm going to read them kind of in rapid fire on the digital notes. So if you want to follow along there, you can on the digital notes. If you go to our website and then you go to sermon notes, all the verses are right there. Listen to these verses. This is Matthew 21, 21. Jesus told them, I, I tell you the truth, if you have faith and don't doubt, you can do things like this, talking about miracles that Jesus had performed, and much more. You can even say to this mountain, may you be lifted up and thrown into the sea, and it will happen. You can pray for anything, and if you have faith, you will receive it. There's a connection between faith and the miracles of God. Mark 11, a similar passage, verse 22 to 24. Jesus said to the disciples, have faith in God. I tell you the truth, you can say to this mountain, may you be lifted up and thrown into the sea and it will happen. Listen to this part. But you must really believe it will happen and have no doubt in your heart. 
I tell you, you can pray for anything. And if you believe that you've received it, it will be yours. This may be causing some tension in your mind, in your heart, because you you may feel like you've prayed for something and you really believe that God can do it, and yet God didn't answer the prayer that you wanted in the way that he wanted. What's going on here? Was my faith not good enough? Maybe this is causing tension for you. John 14. You can ask for anything in my name, and I will do it. So that the Son can bring glory to the Father. Yes, ask me for anything, again, in my name, and I will do it. We can't escape a connection that Jesus is establishing between our faith and God's miracles. It's here. But then what do we do with our experiences in life when we have prayed for a miracle and it didn't happen? Well, let's ask the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 12 tells us this. God was doing some incredible, amazing things in Paul's life. He had seen things uh, through the revelation of God, been discipled by Jesus, just some amazing, incredible things. And He says in 2 Corinthians 12, to keep me from becoming proud, I was given a, what he calls a thorn in my flesh, a messenger from Satan to, he uses the word torment me. This was genuine suffering he was experiencing. And then he tells us why God placed this suffering in his life. He says the second time, to keep me from becoming proud. And he begged, says, three times I begged the Lord to take it away. And each time he said, my grace is all you need. My grace is sufficient. My power works best in weakness. Once Paul understood that, once he accepted that, then he's able to say this. So now I'm glad to boast about my weakness so the power of Christ can work through me. That's why I take pleasure in my weaknesses and the insults, the hardships, the persecutions, the troubles that I suffer for Christ. Because he realizes when I'm weak, that's when I'm strong. It seems as though whenever we go to Paul's example, and you know this probably from your own life, that this idea of a, uh, a formula a magical formula for a miracle kind of blows up when you read something like that from 2 Corinthians. Although it sounded like from those verses that we read from, from, uh, from Jesus in the Gospels, uh, just, just all you have to do is have enough faith and say the right words, presto, a miracle. And yet that's not what Paul experienced, and I'm imagining that's not what we have experienced in our lives either. So what's happening? There's a tension that we feel over this. There's some connection between our faith and God's miracles, but what is it? So what I'd like to do, I'm going to ask you if you would open your Bibles to Luke chapter 8. I'm going to walk through a story of one of the miracles of Jesus in the lives of several different people. And hopefully we can make some sense of this tension. I'm going to do my best. Luke chapter 8, we're going to start in verse 40. Luke 8, 40. 
So Jesus was traveling around. He went to one side of, of the sea, and he's teaching. He comes back. The crowds are following him. The crowds are growing. The, the crowds are getting kind of intense. In fact, in this story, it's described that the, the, the crowds are so big and, and so aggressive that they are just pressing up against Jesus. It's, it's going nuts. The excitement, the enthusiasm, people that want to be around Jesus. And in the midst of all of that, it says in, in verse 41, there's this man named Jairus, and it tells us, uh, what his job is in the community. It says he's a leader of the local synagogue. And he came and he fell at the feet of Jesus, pleading with him, begging with Jesus, please, I beg you. Like, imagine falling at the feet of Jesus in this big crowd. I'm begging you, please come to my house. My 12-year-old daughter is dying. That's what he says to Jesus. My daughter's dying. I'm begging you, please come heal her. Jarius is someone important in the community. Everybody knows his name. Everybody knows his role as a leader at the temple. And this well-known man, this highly respected man, I'm sure, in the community comes and he's on his knees. Maybe he's face down in the dirt begging Jesus for a miracle on behalf of his 12-year-old daughter. Parents, dads, what would you be willing to sacrifice for the sake of your child's life? The religious leaders at this time, when this happened, they were already at odds with Jesus. Right, so his colleagues are already at odds with Jesus. Some of them have already accused Jesus of coming from Satan. Some of them had already accused Jesus publicly of being a lawbreaker. There's already tension behind the scenes, and some of it even very public, that his colleagues don't like Jesus. So for Jairus to go looking for Jesus and beg for help, what is he risking? Well, he's, he's risking his position as a synagogue ruler. And I'm thinking, I get it. As a dad, I would sacrifice anything to save my daughter's life. My job, absolutely. Like that. Reputation, sure. Influence, lose the house, Yep, without hesitation. If, if I really believed that Jesus could heal her, do you see that? He did. If he didn't really believe that Jesus could heal his daughter, he would not have risked losing his job, losing his influence, Losing, you know, what goes along with losing your job, perhaps losing your home. There was a lot at stake, and he didn't care about any of it because he believed that Jesus could heal his daughter. We pause on that because the story pauses on that. It's such a fascinating story. We like hit pause in the middle of this, like, what happens? 
time is of the essence. Let's go. And in the, in the midst of this, it says Jesus is going with him. The, crowd, the crowds are surrounding. They are pressing in. And in the middle of all that, look at verse 43. A woman in the crowd had suffered for 12 years with constant bleeding. She could find no cure. For as long as that little girl has been alive, this woman has been bleeding, suffering. In Mark's, the Gospel Mark, in his account, he gives us a little more information and said that she's gone to all these doctors. She went to every doctor she could find. She's gone bankrupt trying to find a cure for the last 12 years. And he, Mark says, not only did they not help her, they made things worse. Verse 44, coming up behind Jesus, she touched the fringe of his robe. Immediately, the bleeding stopped. Who touched me? Who touched me? Imagine the scene. Imagine being in the crowd. Your response might be what Peter, same as Peter's response. What are you talking about? The, everyone is touching you. Everyone is pressed in. We're bumping up against each other. This is nuts. Who touched you? You think, no, no, no. You, you don't understand. Verse 46, someone deliberately touched me. I felt healing power go out of me. Hmm. Well, the woman realized that she could not stay hidden. She could not stay anonymous. She began to tremble. And we'll find out in a moment why she was so fearful. She fell to her knees in front of him. The whole crowd heard her explain why she had touched him. And then she had been immediately healed. Now, I want you to listen to how Jesus addresses her. This is going to make a lot more sense in just a moment. But he addresses her as what? What do you see? Daughter. Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. Jesus addresses her as daughter and connects her faith to the miracle. There's such a sharp contrast between this woman and Jairus. We have no name for this woman. Her name could be Betty, it could be Ruth, it could be whatever. We, we have no idea what her name is. She is the opposite of Jarius. Everyone knows who Jarius is. Nobody knows who this woman is, and nobody cares. Nobody cares who this woman is because she's a nobody in the community. In fact, she's less than a nobody in the community because she has this bleeding problem going on for the last 12 years, which made her, you ready, ceremonially unclean for the temple. The community, the Jewish community, revolves around temple life, and she can't participate for over a decade. That means that she's marginalized from the community, and if she comes in physical contact with anyone, if she touches someone, if someone touches her, that person is now considered ceremonially unclean for the day. No one wants to be around her. So she's not, she's not participating in community life because she can't participate in the temple. 
And when people do see her and they know her situation, they need to stay their distance away because she's unclean and they don't want to go through the inconvenience of being part of that. She spent all of her money on doctors, which just made things worse, so she's broke, she's marginalized, she's desperate, and she hears about Jesus. Think about the faith that it took for this woman to leave her home that day and insert herself into a crowd. Everyone pressed up against everyone else, bumping into one another. All it's going to take, all it's going to take is one person to recognize her and call her out in front of all the people. What are you doing here? You're, you're, you're ruining our day. What? It's a huge risk. But this woman believed it was worth the risk. Why? Because she believed that Jesus could heal her. And Jesus didn't let her go unnoticed. I think that's fascinating. Everyone knows Jairus. Nobody knows this woman. She's anonymous even in the story. But Jesus, it's important for her to not be unnoticed. He highlights this woman's faith. And I thought, why, why would he do that? I mean, he knows her situation. Why, why would he point her out? Why would he not just allow her to go on with her day anonymous with a miracle. I mean, she didn't, she, she didn't even come to Jesus with a theologically correct mindset about the miracle. I'm going to sneak up on Jesus, and I'm going to touch his magic coat. Well, that's not... Jesus' clothes are not magic. She's, theologically, she is incorrect. She did not want to risk being noticed by the crowd, but Jesus noticed her, and he called her what again? Daughter. That's the heart of Jesus. And then he says, your faith has healed you. Back to Jairus. So this episode is happening, and, and while he's, it says in verse 49, while he's still speaking to her, a messenger arrived from the home of Jairus. Again, just in case you forgot it, Jairus is a big deal. He's a leader of the synagogue. He's important. He's influential. And, he's been, and Jesus has, has had his time being wasted by this anonymous woman. You, you can't escape what, what Luke's trying to help you understand in the, in the story. And the friend comes and says, Jarius, your daughter's dead. There, there's no use in troubling the teacher now. Just, let's just go home. But when Jesus heard what happened, he said to Jarius, and I'm just imagining what this looked like. You got... You got the crowd that's pressing in, everyone's loud, bumping up against each other. There's Jarius, the woman, all of these, these things happening, the disciples trying to figure out what's going on. And I'm just imagining in that moment, Jesus maybe putting his arm around Jarius, pulling him in, maybe leaning into his ear. And he says this, don't be afraid. Just have 
faith. Just keep believing and she will be healed. Verse 51, when they arrived at the house, Jesus wouldn't let anyone go in with him except Peter, James, and John, the little girl's parents. The house is filled with people. And they're weeping. They're wailing. And Jesus, just imagine, he walks into the house, and perhaps the little girl's maybe in a back bedroom or something, and maybe the living room's full of all these people, and he says to them, stop weeping. She's not dead. She's only asleep. And their reaction, they laughed at him. They mocked Jesus because they knew she was dead. Like, Jesus, we know what dead is. She's dead. So Jesus goes to where the little girl is. It's just a private gathering. Parents, Peter, James, John, and Jesus. He takes the little girl by the hand in a loud voice. My child, get up. And in that moment, her life, her spirit returned to her. She immediately stood up. Jesus says, give her something to eat. The parents are... I love this word, overwhelmed, you think? Yeah, overwhelmed is probably an understatement. And Jesus insisted they not tell anyone what had happened. Wow, what, what an incredible miracle. I want you to go back to verse 50. Go back to that moment, though, when Jesus pulls Jairus in and says, don't be afraid, just believe. Jerry's had a choice in that moment, didn't he? His friend had just come and said, don't bother the teacher, she's gone. Jesus said, <laughs> time out, just keep believing, she'll be healed. He had to make a decision in that moment who he would believe. And what's verse 51 tell us? The next part of the scene is Jesus and Jarius at his house, which tells us that he kept believing. Otherwise, he would have just said, I'm sorry, we need to part ways. My daughter's gone. I need to go deal with my family and, and grieve. But Jairus didn't do that. He said, let's go. We get to the house, and Jesus says to the people that were there, she's not dead, she's sleeping, and they all mock, they all laugh. And that moment, Jairus could have said, you're right, this is This is dumb. I don't, I don't need this. Just let us alone. My wife and I need to grieve. That's not what he does. They go into the room with his daughter, with Jesus. He kept believing. And I thought about their experience, the unknown woman that we, we, we don't know who she is. We're not told her name. She could have stayed home that day. Jarius could have stayed home that day. He could have went home in that moment without Jesus, but they both demonstrated faith in Jesus. And although it's obvious Jesus is the one with miracle-working power, Jesus himself connected the miracle to their faith. There's something to it. There is a correlation, a connection, a relationship between our faith and the miracles of God. How do we make sense of all of that? I want you to write this down. I think in your paper notes, I have some fill-in-the-blanks for you. They're always fun, so you can fill in the blanks. Miracles are not a result of a magic formula. We know this from our personal experience. We can see it different times throughout the Word of God. Miracles are not a result of uh, you, you just have to say the right words, 
have this big amount of faith, and as long as you say it the right way and, and do it in the right order, you'll get anything. That We know that that's not how it always works. It's not a magical formula. We don't just sneak up on Jesus and touch the magic clothes. We don't need to go uh, to some uh, holy site and touch the holy relic in order to get our miracle. That's superstition. Miracles are not a result of a magic formula, but they do require a divine equation. They do require a divine equation. When we read verses that say, just believe, just pray in Jesus' name, and God will give you whatever you want, it almost sounds like this magical formula. Behave yourself, go to church a few times, say all the right stuff, and God has to give you the miracle. And we just know from our own experience, we know from the Word of God, it doesn't work like that all the time. And here's what sometimes happens. What sometimes happens in those experiences is we begin, some of us, begin to think, well, I guess I'm not important enough to God. I guess my faith wasn't big enough. It wasn't strong enough. I guess maybe God doesn't see me, or maybe he was taking a nap, or he was paying attention to somebody else. Maybe I didn't do it the right way. I got the wording out of order. All of these kind of wonky, theologically incorrect conclusions. And we know they're theologically incorrect. We can point to one reason why we know that just in this story. Jesus stopped on his way to an important person's home that everybody knew. Whose daughter was dying. I mean, of all the, the things that would motivate someone to run, let's go. Time is of the essence. It'd be a 12-year-old girl dying. And yet Jesus stopped to encourage the faith of an unknown, unimportant, unclean, anonymous woman who had not been to the temple in 12 years. She had a theologically incorrect kind of faith, and yet she received a miracle. And Jesus connected that miracle to her faith. God's miracles are not a result of a magic formula, but if you look carefully, and you just... You study the pattern of all of these miracles that Jesus did throughout the Gospels. You see a repeated divine, what I would describe as a divine equation that does seem to be required for a miracle. So here we go. Divine equation. You ready? I don't know if I have it written down. I forget what I put on your notes there, but this is it. So if you need to fill in some blanks, this is what it is. God's power plus our faith Ah, here's the part of the, the equation that we sometimes gloss over, forget, maybe didn't understand. Plus God's purpose equals God's miracle. And if you look at that and you're like, that gives me a headache, I'm terrible at math, I totally understand that feeling. If it looks wonky to you, I'm going to try my best to explain it because Honestly, equations are not my thing either. I am terrible at math. 
my parents thought that I needed to be in a special needs class because I was so terrible at math. I remember walking into my algebra class within the first two weeks of, like, I think it was pre-algebra, seventh grade, thinking to myself, well, I guess I'll never graduate high school because I'm never going to get this. This makes absolutely no sense to me. This is bonkers. Letters and numbers, they don't belong in the same thing. What's happening? I just came from English class. Why are you talking about letters? Now, eventually, through a lot of tutoring and a lot of weeping and gnashing of teeth of my parents sitting down at the table trying to help me understand, I eventually was able to kind of understand the simple equations, A plus B equals C, and you have to find the constant and what's the variable. I I, I get that level of equations, but that's about all that makes sense to me. Look at this. So my son is in college studying advanced math, and he, this is the stuff he comes home with. This is his homework. And he loves to come home and show me his homework just to remind me how dumb I really am. He loves it. Fills his life with joy. Look at this, Dad. Yeah, I get it. I'm dumb. Yeah, I get it. And that's okay. Yeah, that looks, that's just, people just writing scribbles on there for all I know, right? That means nothing. So when, uh, go back to, go back to this equation. This is simple, all right? I'm, I'm trying my best to keep it simple. I see this. I, I see this connection between our faith, this relationship between our faith and God's miracle as a simple equation. We start with the constant. What do we know is the constant? Well, we know that God's power is the constant. It's not a variable. God's miracle-working power never, ever diminishes God's miracle-working power is always at full capacity. That is a constant that we can always believe to be true. So that part of the equation we can fill in every time. Does God have enough power to provide a miracle? Answer will always be yes. God has enough, more than enough, sufficient power to do the impossible. We can always fill that part of the equation in. Okay? But there are two variables. The first variable is our faith. So yes, we know the constant. We need God's power in order for the miracle to take place. Because I don't have the power. You don't have the power. God does. That's a constant. The variable that we bring to the equation is our faith. And apparently, that's also necessary for the miracle. No faith, no miracle. We saw that whenever Jesus went to his hometown. I didn't perform many miracles here because they didn't believe. Their their lack of faith. You remember when, when I won't, I don't think I'm going to look at this one with you. We might delve into it a little bit next week. But how about Peter gets out of the boat, walking on water. That's a miracle. When did that stop? When did he start to sink? When he looked around, saw the waves, and his faith evaporated, he began to sink, right? There's this connection, no faith, no miracle. Can't escape it. So we we have the constant, God's power. We have a variable, our faith, that we need to bring to the equation. But there's another variable in the equation, God's purpose, which we don't always know. We don't always know what that purpose is. Go back to what Paul said. He begged He begged Jesus, 
So when we talk about strong faith, he had strong faith. There's, I don't think you can make an argument that Paul had weak faith. Paul had strong faith in Jesus. He did some incredible things. He loved Jesus. I'm sure he knew how to pray. But God had a different purpose than just relieving his suffering would accomplish. So God's power is a constant. It's a reliable, never-changing part of the miracle equation. We bring faith to the equation. Why, though, when we bring our faith for something, does God not always provide the miracle? Sometimes it's because he has a different purpose that we may see in the moment. We may see later on in life. We may not know until heaven. God's purpose is the unknown variable in this equation. You got to have God's power. We need to bring our faith. But we don't always know God's purpose. So, just being very pragmatic, what then can we control? What can we control? We can control our faith. Our faith is what we can bring to the equation. I can't squeeze my eyes and fists tight enough and use my mental energy in order to perform a miracle. I don't have miracle working power. And neither do you. God does. That's what he brings every time. It's at full measure. We bring our faith. We bring our faith in God's power and we bring our faith in God's purpose. You say, well, I don't know if I've got a lot of faith. You don't have to have. How, how do we describe or measure our faith? We may not even pray theologically correct prayers. But Jesus said a little faith, as small as a mustard seed, can move mountains. See, he's got the power. All he's asking of us is just to bring our faith, just to believe, to keep believing. That's all he's asking of us. And then he'll work out his purposes in, in our situation for his glory, for our good, for the good of those that he's working in around us. And so if you're asking Jesus for a miracle right now, just understand it doesn't matter how rich you are, how poor you are, how important or, or cool people think you are, how unimportant people in the community think you are. It doesn't matter how mature your faith is right now. You might be a seasoned, very mature uh, person of faith. You might have been uh, following Jesus maybe for the last two weeks, and you're like, I'm just trying to figure it all out. doesn't matter. Just believe. That's always asking to bring to the miracle equation, your faith in Jesus, your faith in his power, your faith in his purpose. If you keep believing, if I keep believing, here's the result. You ready? The result will be a miracle. Either the miracle that you prayed for in changing the circumstance or the miracle you needed in changing you. God's power plus our faith plus God's purpose equals God's miracle. 